Hello, welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. It's good to have you with us. We're going to spend another week thinking about culture in a way that honors God, in a way that takes every thought captive to King Jesus. I'm Ryan Aris, and this is episode 9 of season 2 of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, and we are going to just keep going until podcast technology becomes obsolete, and then we're going to switch to the new platform, and we're going to keep coming at you with whatever it is that replaces podcasts. Today, Andrew Sandlin and Joe Boot are on the show. We talk about Tim Keller and his recent New York Times op-ed, where Tim asserts that Christians don't fit into either of the two major political parties. We talk about a pattern of cultural accommodation amongst evangelical leaders who deny the functional authority of God's word for political situations, but who still want to assert their orthodoxy on matters like the Trinity or on salvation. And we find that the premise about political affiliation itself isn't wrong, but it's often used as a pretext to opening up a whole host of unbiblical conclusions. I'm just uh, I'm just really excited to uh, to get both of you guys together in one room for this. Well, you should be excited. You're very privileged. <laughs> I it's and uh, <laughs> I've uh, I've checked that privilege. I'm aware of it. <laughs> my my privilege is showing. Uh, yeah. But uh, Andrew, thanks again for being here. Joe, thanks for being here again as well. It's it's good to have you back. It's great to be back. Yeah, I wanted to get together uh, with you, Andrew, in particular, because a couple of weeks ago, Tim Keller published something uh, in the New York Times. It was on Christians and political involvement, and um, was Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? And yeah, that, I those... think the title was, I'm paraphrasing, was something like, uh, Christians don't fit into either of the two political parties. It was something like that. Yeah, that's it. And then Andrew, recently you wrote uh, you wrote something that was just kind of a a blow by blow response to uh, to Keller's op ed, and like we we've got uh, we've got I think a a reasonable amount of of respect and appreciation for Tim Keller and what uh, what he's worked on and been able to accomplish in New York City, mm-hmm. but um, one of the things that this article of his did is uh, I guess it's maybe the most recent instance that highlights a pattern of a pattern of uh maybe left-leaning sympathy or of uh maybe that's I mean, that's even too strong uh, maybe but a, maybe it it highlights a pattern of of a, a failure to uh to really take the fight into these uh these cultural areas where it's uh, where the fighting is harshest yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. Um, like you, uh, I, because I do criticize uh, Keller fairly strongly, I want to begin with a commendation. I mean, any Christian and minister that will go to Manhattan, which is a hotbed of secularism and almost, as it were, a, a Babylon similar to Revelation chapter 17, any minister that uh, has a modicum of belief in the Bible that goes there and starts a church and wants to influence that culture uh, I profoundly appreciate, but uh, having said that, I think uh, in many ways the the, the Manhattan culture. Uh, and having said that, by the way, I want to say very quickly that this model of his, the Redeemer Church model, isn't limited just to New York City. There are all sorts of the Redeemer type churches, right. and the PCA Presbyterian Church in America, all over the U.S. and frankly all over the world. Uh, so his he does have a massive uh, influence. I think what has happened, and increasingly over the years, 
uh, as as often the case, is the 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 culture itself has become uh, to come to significantly influence his message and what is said, and in particular, not just what is said, but what is not said. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you use the language of not taking the battle to the enemy. Uh, I think that's correct. Um, initially, some of his public comments about uh, same-sex marriage, homosexuality, were quite um, d- deeply troubling. I would say to his credit that a couple of two, three, four years ago, his church put out a statement much better, still somewhat hedging, but nonetheless stressing uh, the biblical approach to homosexuality. But I would say on the whole, and in particular in this article, there is a tendency to, and here's the word Francis Schaeffer used, accommodate. Uh, there's an expression I use, the accommodation junkies. Uh, there's always the tendency whenever there's an attack on the faith to accommodate, not to give up the faith altogether, but just go as far as we can accommodating uh, without completely giving up the faith. I think that is an element of what you're seeing in that article and in general with what he's been saying the last decade or so. No, I think I think that's exactly it. Tim, if you're listening, we would love to get you on here and uh, allow you to clarify your position on these issues. But uh, for the time being, I'll be content with, uh, with you, Andrew, uh, with Joe. Um, and I, th- I think... Uh, you, you point out here, actually, why don't, why don't we start with this? Why don't, you, uh, why don't you just give us a bit of a rundown of what, uh, what the thrust of this article is of, of uh, Keller's in the New York Times? Yes, well, I mean, the, the, uh, he's making his uh, leading assertion is correct, but what he derives from that assertion and how he elaborates on it is incorrect. So he says, essentially, that God uh, is not a member of the Democratic or Republican Party and stands above and judges both of them. I think all of us would agree or should agree with that. But then he sort of launches into a most – it's interesting. After asserting that, he's launching into a um, political discussion that would be much more comfortable to those on the left, the Democratic Party. I've noticed that about – uh, Pastor Keller, he'll, he'll try to be above the fray and say things, you know, God's not a Democrat or a Republican, but much of what he says tends to be much more accommodating toward the left. So uh, he'll constantly bring, he'll bring up issues like uh, slavery, which clearly, I mean, uh, the Bible, uh, certainly the, the sort of racial slavery we've seen in America and elsewhere condemns. And then he will talk uh, about the race relations, and he'll talk uh, sometimes about uh, homosexuality. He's he's really heavy on caring for the poor. But when he's and this is really, I think, in many ways, his fundamental issue, and he tends to come out very leftist on this. Uh, he won't, of course, say that he's a socialist. But uh, one thing he states in the article, he says, well. Essentially, God's uh, standards, for one thing, the Word of God is not clear on most of these political issues. Now, the fact is that's just not true. Right. Uh, the Bible is clear on all sorts, for instance, on socialism and on uh, the, what we call today the market, on sexual issues, and on racial issues, for that matter. Uh, but what he's able to do by, by arguing that way is he's able to smuggle in human autonomy. He's able to say in, in some uh, historical situations and cultures— uh, the free market might be a good idea. But in others, the best way of caring for the poor is through socialism or through uh, you know, government intervention. 
so to me, the most troubling aspect of that article is really denying the functional authority of the Word of God in political situations. Now, what's really ironic about this, Ryan, is I, I bet if you asked Tim, if you said, now, uh, would you say the same thing is true about the cross and the resurrection hmm. and salvation by grace? He would say, oh, no, no, that's true in all situations and in all cultures. I mean, that's the heart of the gospel. But you see, I would respond to that, that these other assertions in the Bible dealing with these, for instance, uh, economic issues and sexual issues, they're every bit as dogmatic, every bit as clear as the assertion of the gospel, or at least the historical elements of the gospel in the Bible. So I think there is a strong element of autonomy that he's trying to smuggle in. And in doing that, he's able to say, well, what the uh, conservatives, Republicans say might be good sometimes, what the Democrats and leftists say might be good uh, other times, depending on the historical situation. Well, I mean, if we were just being very blunt about it, we would call that, as Christians, ethical relativism. Um, but because, of course, he's well-respected, we often don't like to say that. Now, he uses the term there, well, it's not really, I think, something like normative or required, but prudence. Now, yeah. I don't deny that there are some cases. Uh, the book of Proverbs, for instance, is written so we would have prudence on situations where the Bible does not speak. Which automobile should we buy? Which car should we take? Uh, what church should we attend? And then there are many, many cases where the Bible doesn't specifically speak, but we're governed by the truths of the Bible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But a number of the things that he mentions in that article, frankly, the Bible's quite clear about. So what he's really wanting to do is to, it seems to me, is assert an essentially leftist viewpoint under the guise of saying, well, I'm permitted to do this because the Bible's not clear about it. To me, that really is the, the fundamentally flawed view of this article. Yeah, I was I was noticing a few of those cases uh, as well as I read through it. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of lines here just to illustrate. He says that um, some of the ways that Christians should should be involved politically is, uh, to work for better public schools or for a justice system not weighted against the poor or to end racial segregation requires political engagement. Christians have done all these things in the past and should continue to do so. So I mean, I mean, yeah. Well, that's actually disingenuous in some ways. Yeah, I'm exactly. Not he's intentionally lying, but Christians often did not hold the views that he is implying that they held yeah. there. I mean, for the longest time, and a large uh, number of Christians would not support uh, in you know bettering public schools, but would tend to oppose um, government-sponsored uh, education. No, exactly. And I think the language he used there, isn't it? He said, uh, "Justice system weighted uh, weighted toward the poor." Is that what he said? Wait, uh, yeah. yeah, opposing a justice system weighted against the poor. Yeah, well, the, the problem about that is that's just contra-biblical. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Bible says it shouldn't be weighted for or against either the poor or the rich. That's right. I mean, the whole notion of blind justice that we get, you know, justice there holding the scales, the female holding the scales, and just sort of having the band around her eyes, that's essentially a biblical picture, that the rich or poor doesn't matter. Justice should be the same for everyone. So that really shows a degree of, of leftism in, in what he's saying. Another thing I'll bring up, you didn't ask this, but I'm going to mention it anyway, it's truly remarkable he brings up these issues and doesn't find, as I recall, time in the article anywhere to address the fundamental moral issue of our time, and that is abortion. No, no, not I a word of it. I don't believe he mentions it, and I could be corrected. I don't have the article in front of me, but as I recall, I don't think he mentioned that in the article anywhere. No. 
neither neither euthanasia or abortion or for that matter um, human identity sexuality none of the three major moral issues facing the Christian church today are mentioned at all yes I, I think this is now the, the issue here this is how Ryan it's possible and this is not just possible it's actually becoming increasingly pervasive for people who can be considered blandly, uh, sorry, blandly conservative because we believe in the infallibility of the Bible, we believe in the gospel, it's how people like that, I think Tim Keller's view gives them cover to essentially become socio-political leftists while also having the luxury of being considered Bible-believing Christians. And that really is the danger here. Um, one certainly understands, and at least has a degree of a grudging respect for utter secular leftists who tend to hold some of these views and are very loud about them because you know what we're dealing with. But the problem with uh, Tim Keller is he holds a number of these views, and we haven't even mentioned yet, which he, I don't think he addresses in the article, and that is the sort of theistic evolution of biologos and so on. Holding no. a number of these views, and people say, oh, well, obviously if Tim Keller holds it, then that's really, you can, that's very compatible with uh, biblical Christianity. And one can get the impression, well, you can be sort of a you can be a, 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 a Joe Boot sort of uh, Bible-believing Christian, or you can be a Tim Keller Bible-believing Christian. It's just sort of like vanilla and chocolate. Um, and, of course, that's just wrong. But I think that, to me, is one of the real dangers. That connection with BioLogos and some of these other um, I guess organizational connections, that's, uh, that's definitely a concern. Joe, do you have, uh, do you have some experience or uh, some, some uh, comment on that? Well, I... I fundamentally agree with uh, the way Andrew has characterized uh, this already. I mean, I would want to add uh, with Andrew, uh, especially uh, for our, our listeners, um, the deep appreciation that I have uh, for what Tim Keller has contributed um, in the area of uh, gospel ministry in uh, New York and with the Redeemer Network. And I know people who have been made passionate about church planting mm -hmm. because of um, Timothy Keller's ministry um, and uh, who are uh, concerned for even things like apologetics because of uh, Tim Keller's ministry. I think we can, be, we can be grateful for that. And I'm also thankful for the fact that even in this article, uh, one of his opening statements is he says, Christians cannot pretend they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. Now, that's a good statement, and, um, uh, and, and I can agree with that, and I can say amen to that. But as Andrew has, I think, uh, eloquently noted there, we can agree with some of these opening statements. It's what he does with them. Then, mm -hmm. Yeah, that for sure. That becomes problematic. Uh, we would absolutely be with Keller in saying, look, the gospel cannot be truncated to a narrow set of dicta, uh, a few propositions about justification and sanctification, uh, without um, it being fleshed out in terms of its implications for the totality of a person's life, of the Christian life. And that means that there are, if we're going to preach the gospel and the lordship of Christ faithfully, there are implications of the lordship of Jesus Christ and the fullness of the gospel being the kingdom of God and the reconciliation of things to God in Christ that obviously, unless we are to adopt a fully secularist worldview, 
we can't uh, hermetically seal those things into one domain that aren't touched by the gospel. And Timothy Keller recognizes that, and for that we can be thankful. However, and this is where the proviso is that I think Andrew is highlighting, uh, it is disappointing to go from that very good start then into these uh, pseudo-Christian or even contra-biblical ideas about justice and political life. And uh, you've talked about a trajectory. I mean, Christians who are conservative Christians who are careful observers of the evangelical world today and its, and its leaders will know that uh, Tim Keller is a strong supporter and part of the BioLogos, which Andrew mentioned, group which is uh, advancing essentially Darwinian evolution. I mean, the, the goal there of that organization is to advance among Christians Darwinian evolution, um, which is obviously nowhere in the Bible. And we could have a long discussion in a, in a totally different podcast on uh, the, the, the notions involved in Darwinian evolution and the implications of that and the the reality of a historical Adam and what does that mean for the creation of the first human pair and male and female and their first marriage. And so you've got that seedbed of Christian doctrine there being undermined, I believe, by the organization BioLogos. And then this summer, um, Tim Keller was speaking at a Living Out conference in That's England. That's right. That's right. Sam Albury's. Yeah, Sam Albury's organization. And there's probably another podcast there to have a discussion about uh, some of the positive things that can be said about engagement with the issue of um, human sexuality, but also some of the dangers that are beginning to emerge from uh, that movement as well, which uh, is taking a, uh, well, as a minimum, a, a soft peddling approach, if not an, uh, an affirmative approach towards the whole notion of sexual minorities and gay identity and so forth. So the difficulty is that when... Um, Tim Keller has had opportunity to signal um, his views in this area. As Andrew has noted, they seem to fall into this socialistic, social justice oriented, um, and actually, frankly, uh, culturally Marxist narrative that is dominating our culture today. On reading his op-ed, for example, I found nothing in it that I could say was countercultural. Um, the, the, the secular individual reading that is just going to have no problem at all with what he's really saying um, about uh, cultural life and the way most people view the role of religion. And I actually, in, in my book, Mission of God, some years ago, had a fairly extensive critique uh, of Tim Keller's book, uh, his 2012 book, Generous Justice, which is a sort of book-length articulation of the kind of views that he's highlighted in this article um, that depend on this uh, sort of um, socialistic, um, culturally Marxist reading um, of the justice issue and of the Bible. And I'm heavily critical of, of Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, in there. And, of course, I took a lot of heat for that because I'm criticizing a, a fellow evangelical but I was alerting people to the danger that, 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 that I see in the way in which um, Timothy Keller is handling the Bible when it comes to these, um, uh, these critical issues. And I think it is a concern when you can read an article and feel, well, 
what is distinctly Christian about it? I mean, yeah, what no, exactly. is distinctly counter-cultural uh, in there? And I think, I think what we'd be wanting to respectfully do um, with the open invitation to a conversation with uh, Tim, Tim Keller is, is ask why uh, biologos and uh, living out and generous justice and this, when you position these uh, cultural issues, why do they always seem to be on this, as, as Andrew has said, this very left-leaning leftist side? In fact, I think Andrew in his response article highlighted that the one story that uh, Tim Kelly uses is of a, um, a Presbyterian pastor, I think it is, going to Scotland and finding these incredibly faithful Presbyterian ministers, uh, all uh, um, uh, Sabbatarian and strongly reformed, um, and then this American pastor discovering, however, that politically they were essentially socialists, and how he felt personally challenged and rebuked by that as yeah, he went he back to America. Came, came home humbled. Humbled and rebuked. And it's like, why is it never the other way around? Why is it always the same way? And I think perhaps Andrew might want to comment on, on, on that. No, I, I was just um, affirming what you're saying. I think that's, I think that's quite correct. I, I think what is, and you kind of were essentially touching on this, Joe. I think what's lacking there, and, and here I would want to back uh, back up a little more broadly and say this is a criticism increasingly of evangelicalism, and certainly not just Keller, but it really lacks uh, a prophetic. Tone, and I don't mean that in a specifically sort of charismatic or Pentecostal sense. I mean a genuinely confrontational tone. Francis Schaeffer said, uh, and, and I'm going to say this quickly to you listeners, I would urge you, if you have any interest in this topic at all, read his 1984 book, The Great Evangelical Disaster. Uh, it's 34 years old now. It's more relevant now than when it was written. He deals principally with how Evangelicals have compromised on sexuality, on abortion, and on social justice, the very issues we're, we're highlighting right now. And it's truly remarkable. And here, here's what he said. He's, one thing he says, and I'm paraphrasing a little, but he's saying that genuine love demands confrontation. So if we really do love the culture, then we have to love the culture enough to confront it with its sin. The difficulty I have with much, and not just on this particular article, but much of modern evangelicalism, is it's always accommodating and it's never confronting. The irony is that increasingly, when it does confront, it confronts in the wrong way on the wrong issues. It confronts, for instance, strong Bible-believing Christians. It confronts them for standing firmly for biblical sexuality. Right. Now, that leads to another thing I hope... You don't mind if I kind of jump in here, Joe, is that correct? No, you go ahead. I think I've developed, a, probably not original with me, but I, I'm not sure whom I can give credit for, but a sort of a taxonomy of what you have. And I appreciate, Joe, the way that you started out with this. So you've got essentially on this three groups, and they're, they're all mutually exclusive. You have, first of all, what we might call the, the pietists, uh, or those who embrace what I'd like to call contracted Christianity, which is the faith is limited essentially to soteriology, salvation doctrine, uh, living the Christian life in a private way, coming to church, witnessing, and you know, being holy before God. Uh, I think that's one group. They would look on people like us, on Runner and CCL, and 
the institute and so on as well, you're kind of involved in peripheral issues that aren't really all that important. So that's the sort of have this the pietist. Uh, then you have a group, and I think Keller uh, would be representative and others, they say, oh, we know that's wrong, as you started out, Joe. We know that's a mistake because you can't be apolitical, you can't be really asocial, so you really do need to apply the faith in those areas. Their problem, however, is they don't allow the Bible itself mm-hmm. to shape their understanding, and so they import leftist assumptions and leftist presuppositions, give them a Christian veneer, a Christian view of social justice, you know, Christian yes. social justice, Christian cultural Marxism, and say, oh, we're not like those pietists. Oh, no, we're not like them. We believe in applying the faith in culture. But it's not really the genuine faith that they're applying in culture. Mm-hmm. And then third, I would say, are people, I believe, like uh, the Institute and CCL and uh, others historically, like Francis Schaeffer and, and um, R.J. Rastuni, today John Frame, and there, there are a number of others who believe that the Bible is authoritative in all areas of life. So we, like those in the second category, not pietists, but unlike those in the second category, we believe the Bible itself is authoritative in all areas of life. So I think using that taxonomy of these three kinds of groups will help us to kind of plot people. And I understand some people are partly in one camp and occasionally in the other. But I think that's a helpful, a helpful rather, uh, description of what's going on today. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was just realizing that uh, reading through, reading through this, uh, this New York Times piece, like, there's there's nothing in here about the lordship of Jesus, about the authority of Scripture. That's right. Um, and I mean, this is, like we have to be aware that about the platform here. This is the New York Times. It's not it's not making any specialized demands of its uh, of its readership. Um, but like there there are claims here that are so broad as to be like almost unintelligible, or I don't really see the use of it. So he's uh, he's making a big a big point. One of the major points here that he makes is that um, we can't equate the church um, kind of mapped it one to one or allow it to be fully identified with any particular party uh, because of something called package deal ethics, where you have to you have to to toe the party line on every issue, or you can't uh, you can't participate. And like I just like yeah I. Just, that doesn't seem that that doesn't seem true. That seems to be like a major overstatement of the case. Like, is that? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I may have put it in my article. I mean, that's a, it's a prime example of a solution in search of a problem. Um, yeah. The yeah. fact is, I, nobody, conservative or liberal, I, as far as I know, believes that any Christian has to affirm everything in any party. Uh, and there are no explicitly Christian part. I mean, there have been historically, but they have like about three supporters, right? I mean, there are two. Now, two major political parties in the U.S. There have been third parties along the way, but for the most part, I mean, we have a two-party system. I think for the most part, Canada does. I know you might have, well, it's actually three maybe, right? Three or four? Three or four, um, two, but only two usually strong. Two main, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think he's, that's, that's just mistaken, what he calls the package deal ethics. I think what he's, you see, I think what he's really trying to say there, I mean, let's just cut to the chase is you can be a good Bible-believing Christian but don't have to buy into uh, what are known today as conservative sociopolitical views. Essentially, I think that's the point he's trying to make. Well, if he's wanting to make that, it seems to me he is, he should just come out and say that. He shouldn't just say, well, you can't be really – we really can't plot ourselves 
in one or the other. And the reason people don't join the Republican Party is because, or, or conservative, is because they can't affirm all those things. They want to be conservative on, a, on one issue and liberal on another issue. Mm-hmm. I think that's just false. Uh, essentially, what we call today conservative ethics, and conservative, you can take the word or leave it, that is a culturally conditioned word. The important thing is distinctively Christian or biblical ethics do map out to what we call today as conservative generally. So I think what he's trying to do is open a way so that you don't have to affirm biblical ethics. That's what he's essentially trying to do, and he's providing a safe space, if I can use that expression, a safe safe space for people that don't want to do that but still want to be considered very devout, Bible-believing gospel people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there is a um, uh, – and in my study of some of his previous work, I think there is uh, – protestations to the contrary, a, a dualism at work that doesn't want to, bl- to bring the cultural, social issues, social issues specifically under the light of God's word revelation. Uh, and so there is an attempt to, to wriggle out of clearly authoritative requirements um, of scripture as though we don't really need to um, apply those to the culture at large. And so we have, and I think this is something that's there in, as you've commented on, modern evangelicalism generally, Andrew, is that we talk a lot about the authority of Scripture in evangelical circles. We speak about the infallibility of Scripture, but we don't really believe in its material authority. We don't really believe that the Lordship of Christ, that the commandments of God, actually apply to the concrete lives of people in cultural, social, and political life. And I agree that there's a con- the concern for me here is that I, I do wish Tim would just come out and say specifically what he means. And I think that the reason that that doesn't happen is because he's probably as conscious as we are that that, that is not going to be popular with if, if, there's, if there's less ambiguity and more clarity um, that may affect how uh, evangelicals perceive him and some of his views. So there is, um, there is, a, there is a mapping at times of these uh, foreign, uh, unscriptural philosophical ideas onto biblical terms. So it feels as though there's a kind of abstractionism going on, where terms like justice, um, uh, terms like race even, uh, terms like... Uh, the poor um, are abstracted from their concrete biblical context. Uh, these things are redefined in terms of a foreign philosophical paradigm um, so that the, uh, the Christian lexicon in that sense, the, w- sa- the same words are being used, but the substance of the meaning of those words is being changed. Hence the, the focus almost exclusively on the poor, uh, as, uh, as he puts it, and, and um, uh, justice for them. And yet I'm not aware of any law on the American statute books or on the Canadian statute books right now that systemically persecutes the poor. Um, and, and yet this is the, this is the mantra. So I, my, my concern is that actually sometimes out of a good motive, and I'm sure in Tim's case it is out of a good motive, I think a misguided one, but a, a good motive, there's a desire to see people 
uh, engage culturally. Uh, but because of this um, mapping of foreign philosophical assumptions onto um, biblical terminology and a failure to bring the word of God to bear on the congregation, on the life of the church in these areas, the irony is that you actually radically politicize the church because Christian people then uh, in, the, in your congregation are left to go their own way uh, to, to, to import, to bring in all these humanistic ideas into the life of the church and the Bible never confronts them. Scripture is never allowed to confront, the word of God is never allowed to directly confront those uh, unbiblical ideas. And instead, we have this synthesis, so you've called it accommodation, and I think it's the same idea, that we then try and synthesize the dominant view of the culture that, well, this is what Christians have been saying all along, and we can't really identi identify with these um, uh, conservative values as we're seeing them expressed uh, today. And then it gives a whole group of people the excuse to continue to think uh, and indeed vote in the direction that they are, as though there's ever a point in which Christians should be voting for political parties that promote so-called homosexual marriage, uh, abortion, um, euthanasia, confiscation of people's wealth for redistribution, and so on. Um, it gives people, as you said, a kind of permission to say, well, I can continue to hold all of those ideas because I'm told the Bible doesn't have anything to say about them. Yes, well said. Uh, I think there's another element, too, and feel free to correct me, Joe, but I, in my reading of Keller, I found something really fascinating. Have you ever noticed that in almost every case in which he's reacting on some sociopolitical topic or issue, not acting, but reacting, he's almost always reacting against a strongly biblical, or we would say conservative, approach in other words, he seems much more anxious about, we might say worried about, the a strongly biblical approach that you have been talking about, Joe, than he is about the surrounding leftist uh, Manhattan cultural approach. To Precisely. me, if anything, that has things just backwards. Uh, if anything, our main concern would be, and it's, I think it's the, the Bible's concern, I know it's the Bible's concern, Old and New Testaments, is accommodating with the surrounding culture. Yet he seems to be concerned that people are take, might be taking the Bible a little too seriously, insisting on the authority of the Word of God and these cultural issues too much when they shouldn't be. When, frankly, the, the principal concern in the Word of God is accommodation, or like you said, Joe, synthesis. So I think that, that too, gives people permission to, oh, well, yeah, you know, I'm I'm kind of like this, like the world out here, but thank God I'm not one of those Bible-thumping fundamentalists. Right. That's what I think is also going on. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Podcast for Cultural Reformation. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, share, rate the podcast on your favorite listening platform. For more Ezra Institute resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.